All right, well, we are going to be back in the book of Acts, and we got quite a bit of ground to cover this morning. So if you would, I invite you to open your Bibles back to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. <clears throat> now, <laughs> we, uh, we're going to go on a bit of an adventure together this morning. So you're going to need to hold on pretty tight to some portions of this because when you're looking at narrative and you're trying to understand the, the point of the passage by the author here and Luke being the narrator, and if you're new to us, the book of Acts is, um, is inspired church history. It's Luke documenting the early church after Christ's death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. And in the book of Acts, we've been looking at these inspired church history narratives and this one in particular, well, it's got some length to it. In fact, we are going to cover 72 verses this morning. So we are going to start in 6-8 and end in 8 chapter 4. And the reason we're doing that, beloved, is not because I desire to preach 72 verses in a morning. The reason we're going to do that is the very point of this sermon, the very point of this this passage from Luke that's laid out in our Bible, the, the very essence of why we need to study this is not found until chapter 8, verse 1, and chapter 8, verse 4. But it all starts back in chapter 6, verse 8. And so, as you think about this section, if you've read it before, you probably know about, this is about the life of Stephen. And in fact, we're going to come back in a couple weeks and revisit Stephen's life. You also may know that we meet a man named Saul in this passage, who becomes the Apostle Paul. In this passage, he is still a murderer who's hunting believers in the early church. We have the longest recorded public sermon of the early church from Stephen. And Stephen's life is worthy of great study, and we'll revisit it. But here's the thing, beloved. This passage is put in our scriptures for the early church and for us to answer a different kind of question than just studying the life of Stephen, though it's important and it's crucial. And just getting to know Paul in his early days before he's a believer, though that's important and it's crucial. Here's why we need a passage like this, beloved, and here's why it's put in your Bible, and here's why we have to get to chapter 8 to see it. Because questions that arise in our mind about persecution are answered in this passage. I don't know if you've ever felt this before or thought this or you've thought when people are suffering on other continents for the gospel and they're being killed and you ask questions like this with a humble but maybe discouraged heart. God, maybe a question like this. Why do you allow persecution and suffering at the hands of godless men to come to your church? Why? Not asking it in pride, but just saying, God, I, I would like to understand better why it is that sometimes some of the most choice servants end up having their ministry life cut short because they're killed for their faith. Have you ever thought this thought, and I have, couldn't that, so, that believer that was killed for their faith, maybe we're studying church history or we're looking at other continents, have you ever thought, couldn't they have been more useful if they lived longer? Ever thought that? What about this, beloved? Here's why this passage, chapter 6, verse 8 to 8, 4, will become very practical. When, not if, 
A day is coming, beloved, in the United States of America where we will not be allowed or have the freedom to worship freely. We have experienced a unique season of grace in our country, but a day is coming where we will not have the freedom to worship. This passage is the type of passage that we will come back to in those days when we have friends and loved ones either being imprisoned or possibly killed for their faith, like every other generation of Christians besides us pretty much. This passage becomes very practical if you are in a persecuted church. And here's what else is sweet about this passage. Is God has a man named Stephen rise to the surface to be used by him. And you know why we should be very interested in Stephen? He's the first non-apostle to rise to the surface to be used by God. You could say this, Stephen's a layman. Stephen's one of us. He's a young man who was godly, who had godly character, who God started to use in the early church. And if you read about Stephen, you probably quickly realize he had arguably the shortest ministry career of any of the early church heroes. But do you know why this passage is so important? Because in light of persecution, in light of hostility, you know what we see in the life of Stephen? God does not measure a man's usefulness by the length of time that he lives ultimately, but by how he uses the time that God gives him while he's here on earth. The measure of a man before God is not the length of his life, but how he uses the time God allots to him. And if you're ever wondering if you've read this passage, how does Stephen have a face shining like an angel when he's got an angry mob yelling at him? How does Stephen pray for those that are stoning him as he's bleeding to death? Here's how he does it. He believes what we're going to learn today. And that is, God has far greater purposes than we could imagine when He allows persecution to come to the church. And Stephen believed that, and he knew it, and it just arose from his heart when he happened to be the martyr. So if you wanted to summarize the entire point of this narrative, we could use a quote that arose from the early martyrs in the second century. You've probably heard it, and I've titled the sermon this today. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. We have to get to the end of this narrative, to chapter 8, because that is where we do this brother Stephen a service. We would do him a disservice to not get to the point of his life. His death was gonna, is going to be used by God in ways that we cannot even fathom. So we're going to jump right in. And we're going to be in chapter 6, and we're going to start in verse 8. But just to give us a running start, if you remember, notice chapter 6, verses 1 to 7, what had just happened. The church, if you remember, was having needs. There was these Hellenistic widows that were Greek-speaking Jewish women that were not getting enough of meals and food. So the church got organized and picked godly men and sent out those godly men to meet those needs so the apostles could prioritize the word. One of the men that rose to the surface, a Greek-speaking Jew named Stephen, was one of those men. Now, with that in mind, jump into verse 8 of chapter 6. And this man, Stephen, full of grace and power, 
was performing great wonders and signs among the people. That is to say, he was preaching the truth, bringing the word of God, and the apostles had distributed to him, and God had given him some ability to do miraculous works to accompany his teaching. Now, if you notice there, he's full of grace and power, and he was being used by the Lord. You say, well, how, how would a guy like Stephen be used at this time? Well, if you remember, he's a Greek-speaking Jew. And you had the Jews that spoke mostly Hebrew or Aramaic, and you had the Jews that spoke Greek. So likely, he was out leading Bible studies, home groups, ministering, teaching the Word to the new Hellenistic Jewish Christians that spoke Greek. That would be one of his tasks. Another one of his tasks is that he'd go to the synagogue, to the temple, and he would reason with his old friends that were Greek-speaking Jews about Christ. In fact, remember, at this time, we're just a few months, right, after Christ's death, resurrection, right? And so all they have is they have their what we would call our Old Testament. They would just look at the old writings, the patriarchs and the prophets. And then they had Jesus who had come in His teaching. So He would go and He would go to the synagogues and He'd reason with them, saying, you know the Old Testament, all that it said about Christ? Well, you guys think that this wasn't the Jesus the Nazarene, but it was, and you missed him. And he would start to dialogue with them about how they're missing Christ. In fact, he was so formidable that no one could take him on in an argument and win. Notice what he says. And Stephen, verse 8, full of grace and power, was bringing the word of God in the ways I just described. 9. But some men, from what was called the synagogue of the... Notice that little word there. Freedmen. Literally, freedmen. These were Jews who their parents, under the conquest of Pompeii in 63 BC, they would have been slaves and they were emancipated. And so the generations after were called the synagogue of the freedmen. They were made up of Greek-speaking Jews. So notice this group here. They've got an issue with this great man, Stephen. Notice, some men... Verse 9, the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and some of Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. What are they taking on? They're taking on the case he's making from the Old Testament about why the Old Testament is all pointing to the Messiah that just came. And notice what happens when they try and debate with him. Verse 10, they try to take him on, but, don't, don't you love this? They were unable to cope with his wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. That word there for cope's a, a very interesting word. It's to resist. So they're saying they had an inability to sufficiently argue against him. Could you imagine those discussions? He goes in, he's in the synagogue. Now remember, you just had a whole bunch of priests at the end of the last last uh, section, come to Christ. So now he's going in, and they're saying, okay, you've got that message that some of our priests have embraced. Well, we've got other priests here, and they'll argue with you. And we know our Bibles too, and we'll argue with you. And every time someone would try and disprove the connections he's making from the Old Testament now to Christ, they literally were left speechless. They had no ability to stop his clear articulation of the truth. This man knew his Bible. And guess what? He's probably a fairly new believer saved in the recent months, grew up in the system of Judaism, and now the Spirit of God's got a hold of that truth, and literally no one can contend with his ability to handle Scripture. So what do you do when you can't take a guy out by disproving the Scripture? You fabricate a lie. Notice, they couldn't stop him, right? 
So look what happens now. Verse 11. They were unable, verse 10, they're unable to cope. Verse 11. Then they secretly induced men to say, now watch, they start fabricating a false narrative about Stephen. We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, verse 12, and they came up to him and they dragged him away and brought him before the council. So stop there. Notice what's happening. You've got a group of religious elite, religious leaders, who are angry because they cannot stop his ability to handle the word. So what do they do? They start to introduce a false narrative. And the false narrative that you're going to see, beloved, they're not saying something small. They're about to articulate that Stephen is actually a false prophet. So they're going around and they're about to say, you know that guy that keeps trying to proselytize and tell us about Christ and how the Old Testament points to him? Yeah, he's actually a false teacher. And under Mosaic law, we should stone him for his false teaching. So they grab him and they drag him before the council. What's the council? Sanhedrin. Same people that Peter's been before and the apostles have been before. This group of men that could execute justice on behalf of Rome. So notice verse 13. They put forward a false witness. So they got someone to buy in to their little their little game here of trying to get Stephen declared as a false prophet. Notice 13. They put him forth and said, This man incessantly speaks against the holy place and the law. For, notice 14. We have heard him say that the Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses has handed down to us. Now we've got to stop there for a second. Because you've got to understand what's being put forth here. They're saying about Stephen, now think about it. He's against Moses, and if you're against Moses, you're against God. They're saying he's against the temple. If you're against the temple, you're against God's holy place. He's, they're saying he's against the revelation of God that's been orally passed on and inspired, inspired in Scripture, how that's been passed on. He's against the Scriptures. And notice what they're saying, how he's against the Scriptures. Look back at it again, and notice what they say in verse 14. For we've heard him say that Jesus the Nazarene will destroy this temple. Jesus did talk about himself being the embodiment of the temple, and someday when persecution and, and the end times come, he's going to rip all that down so he can rebuild it. That's true. But notice what they're saying about him. He's altering. Verse 14. He's altering. Here's what they're saying. They're accusing him of distorting the Word of God. So you've got these men saying, this man right here, when he has his Old Testament, he's not teaching it properly. He's distorting the Scriptures. He's against the Scriptures. He does not love the Word. He wants to teach us the wrong things about the Old Testament. Well, they went after the wrong thing with Stephen here. <laughs> Because this guy has already demonstrated he knows his Bible, but they're trying to prove that he's trying to distort what we now call our Old Testament. So, he's put forth as a false teacher. Deuteronomy 18, 19 says they'll stone him if it's true. And he's put before the council. So now think about the scene. you got Stephen. 
This godly man, just a little bit ago, he's leading Bible studies, leading his home group, sharing the truth. He's brand new on the scene as a believer. Before you know it, he's standing before this council of all these religious leaders, all these crowds, everybody's here watching, and they've just said to him, when it comes to the Old Testament, you're a false teacher. You're a false prophet. You're distorting the Old Testament scriptures. You don't love the Word. You don't care about the Word. And now notice 15. With that going on, imagine the scene in your mind and just let it settle in. Look at 15. And fixing their gaze on Him. The idea is all in one accord, they're fixated on Him. They know there's nowhere else to look because they know whatever He says next could lead to His immediate stoning and execution. Everyone's watching. What is He going to say? He is a blasphemer, they called Him. He's a false prophet. And you would imagine at that moment when the crowd's looking on, what, what do you think their expectation would be? I, I was thinking, uh, they, they'd probably think what? This guy is probably going to be shaking in his boots, right? He's going to be concerned. He could lose his life. Just moments ago, he's doing his normal life, and now he's dragged out standing before all these people. What would be a normal response, beloved, of a person like that? What would be no I'm asking you, what would be a normal response? Terrified. Terrified. Timid. Timid. Denying. Denying. What's that? Yeah, I mean, you think he's pale, white as a ghost, concerned, scared. Everything about him should have portrayed fear. And yet, look at what happens when the crowd looks upon him. What did they see? Verse 15, all who were sitting in the council, everybody looked on, and they saw his face, and it looked like the face of an angel. That's not contrived, beloved. He didn't manufacture that. He didn't plan and have his Bible study that day and say, if I face persecution... <laughs> this is the overflow of a man's life who has the perspective of what we're going to learn today. He understands why God brings persecution, even if that means him. And if you look at this and say, how could he do that? Just hang on till we get to the end of the sermon. And you'll realize how he was like that. Because we just don't think that way. We have, we have become so worldly, myself included sometimes, that when we think about the thought of persecution coming to church, we're just gripped with fear because we forget why God uses, how God uses persecution. Stephen didn't forget. Face of an angel, it's language for no fear, contentment, joy, complete faith. When he should have been shaking, he was content. I'm sure immediately the audience is already starting to go, what is the deal with these crazy Christians? We just beat the apostles into their life and they walked out saying what a privilege it was to suffer. We just tried to get Peter to shut his mouth and he just kept telling us we killed the Messiah. And now this guy, he's one of their followers. He's a greater threat now. He's not even an apostle. He's a disciple of the apostles. This movement is becoming too significant. This guy's got to go down. Face of an angel. So now, notice chapter 7, verse 1. The high priest, probably Annas here, said, Are these things so? Chapter 7, verse 1. Are what things so? Sum up what we just learned. Stephen, is it true what they're saying? Are you a false prophet? Are you distorting the Old Testament scriptures? Do you actually hate the God of the old times, the God of the patriarchs and the God of the prophets? You don't love Him at all? You don't love His Word? Are you a false prophet? <laughs> you know what's sweet about this? 
If you want to mark it in your Bible, chapter 7, verse 2, to chapter 7, verse 53, is Stephen's sermon in response to them accusing him of being a false prophet. Think about that. Are you a false prophet? Do you hate the Old Testament, what we call our Old Testament? He's going to say, no, no, no. You guys think I'm distorting the Old Testament. I'm being, oh, I get it. I'm being accused of actually looking at what we call our Old Testament, these old writings of the Bible that's, you know, from Genesis to the end of what we have as our Old Testament, all the way through patriarchs, prophets, and on. They had this corpus of Scripture and he's saying to them, so you guys are accusing me of being opposed to what was taught by God up to this point. You think I'm altering it. Okay, got it. Well, he says, let me just go ahead and demonstrate to you how much I love what has been previously revealed by God. Let me demonstrate to you that I actually believe that you men are distorting the what we call our Old Testament, that you men have corrupted it, and I actually love it, but you're abusing it. So what he's about to do is he's about... We, we study this sermon and we wonder, why all these points? He is saying to them, let me give you a polemic, men. Let me demonstrate to you how much I not only won't distort the old, what we call the Old Testament, but how much I love what has been written in prior times. And so literally 7.2 to 7.53 is one entire response. And I've given him an outline. He, he didn't have an outline. And that's amazing. Because he covers what we're about to see. Beloved, he's about to cover 28 generations in Israel's history. And he's about to cover 1,300 years in Israel's history. No notes. I'm preaching from notes today. <laughs> he's about to stand up and so overflow with the Word of God that he's about to cover for them 13 years from Abraham to Isaiah in one single shot at these men who are accusing him, saying, you don't love the Bible, the Old Testament, what we call it. You don't love the Scriptures that have come before. You're trying to distort them. And here's his outline that I've, here, here's the outline I've given him to cover that. Actually, men, here's six reasons <laughs> that I would never, that, that I, six reasons that demonstrate I love the Word of God and would never distort it. So 7.2 to 7.53 is six reasons I love the Word of God and would never distort it. And if you feel like we're about to go on a serious ride through a lot of redemptive history, we are. We're about to cover 1,300 years in about the next 10 minutes. Maybe 15. Six reasons I love the Word of God and would never distort it. So here goes Stephen in his response. This is so encouraging. Reason one, that I, I, would never I love the Word and would never distort it. The Word of God proves that God was faithful to our patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're telling him he's distorting the Word. He's telling them, I love the Word. The Word is the very thing that documents how faithful God has been. Notice how he starts now. In his sermon, he says, verse 2, Hear me, brethren. He appeals to them here as those of the Jewish nation. 
Verse 2, The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Leave your country and your relatives, and come into the land that I will show you. Then he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. From there, after his father died, God had him move to his country in which you are now living. Move to the promised land, this place in Jerusalem. You men benefit from it. Verse 5. But he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground. And yet, even when he had no child, he promised he would give it to him as a possession and to his descendants after him. Verse 6. But God spoke to this effect, that his descendants would be aliens in a foreign land, and they would be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. And whatever nation to which they will be in bondage, I myself will judge, said God. And after that, they will come out and serve me in this place. Verse 8. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. Stop there. What did he say? You men are accusing me of distorting the patriarchs' message, of distorting Moses' message, of distorting the law? By no means. I love the patriarchs' ministry. I love what God did in their life. I love their ministry. I don't distort it. I love the God of Israel. And I love the God of our patriarchs. You have misunderstood if you think I'm teaching that. That's his first reason that he demonstrates them. He loves the Word and would never distort it. Reason two. Not only Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but reason two. I love the Word and won't distort it. The Word of God teaches me how God cared for Joseph. The Word of God teaches me how God cared for Joseph. And you might even say, how God was preserving His chosen people. Notice verse 9. The patriarchs, those are the twelve sons of Jacob, became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt. Yet God was with him and rescued him from all his affliction, and granted him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his household. Verse 11. You guys know these stories. These are children's stories we learned. Now a famine came over all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction with it, and our fathers could, not fi could find no food. Verse 12. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers there for the first time. On the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family was disclosed to Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent word and invited Jacob, his father, and his relatives to come to him, 75 persons in all. Verse 15. And Jacob went down to Egypt, and there he and our fathers died. From there they were removed to Shechem, and laid in the tomb which Abraham had purchased for a sum of money from the sons of Hamar in Shechem. But at this time of promise, but at this time the time of promise was approaching, which God had assured to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. Stop there. He says, Men, uh, you're accusing me of distorting the Old Testament. I know the Old Testament. I love what we call the Old Testament. I keep saying that because you understand they wouldn't have said Old and New Testament. They would have looked at the previous writings that had come forth. But I'm just summarizing it for us. He's saying, Men, um, you think I distort the word and I don't love it? Actually, I know it very well. I'm already documenting to you through history what's been covered. And I love God's ministry to Joseph as well as all the other 
patriarchs. Do you realize up to this point, he's covered basically Genesis 12 all the way to Genesis 50 in a pretty short economy of words. Now, watch what happens. Reason three, he loves the Word of God and would dare not distort it. The word You guys accuse me of thinking I don't love the ministry of Moses. You are mistaken. His Word teaches us of His compassionate love for Moses. God's Word teaches us that and His commitment to His chosen people even when they were rebellious. Notice verse 18. You know, just a moment, you're noticing here what he's doing. They're accusing him of distorting Scripture. And he's demonstrated to them, I actually know the Scriptures and I would never tamper with it. Let me prove it to you in the life of Moses. Verse 18. Until there arose another king over Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. It was he who took shrewd advantage of our race and mistreated our fathers so they would expose their infants and they would not survive. Verse 20. At this time, Moses was born. And he was lovely in the sight of God. And he was nurtured three months in his father's house. And after he had been set outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and nurtured him as her own son. Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians. And he was a man of power in words and deeds. But when he was approaching the age of 40, he entered in his mind to visit the brethren, the sons of Israel. You know the story. Moses is getting burdened about his people. And when he saw one of them being treated unjustly, he defended him and took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down and murdering an Egyptian. Verse 25, And he supposed that this brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. On the following day, he appeared to them as if they were, and they were fighting together. And he tried to reconcile them in peace, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you injure one another? But the, the one who was injuring his neighbor pushed him away, saying, Who made you ruler and judge over us? You do not mean to kill us as you killed the Egyptian yesterday, do you? Verse 29. At this remark, Moses fled and became an alien in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. After forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness on the Mount of Sinai in the flame of the burning thorn bush. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight. And as he approached to look more closely, there came a voice from the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses shook with fear and would not venture to look. But the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place which you are standing is holy ground. I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt and have heard others groan, and I have come down to rescue them. Come now, and I will send you to Egypt. I'm going to stop there for a moment, because you're probably thinking, Man, this is a lot that he's covering of general basic history for Israel. Why is he doing that? Because he's about to show them, you men also know all of this history. But because you're full of pride and arrogance and you won't read the scriptures in context, you accuse me of having, use our terminology, a hermeneutics problem, you have a hermeneutics problem. And it starts with your unbelief. Because a problem understanding the scripture is always starting with a hard heart. So they're probably thinking, why is this guy going on and on about what we already know? Because he's about to show them. You're just like the forefathers who knew all this, but in their unbelief, rejected it. Notice what he says, verse 35. This Moses whom they disowned, saying, Who made you ruler and judge? Is the one whom God sent to be both ruler and deliverer with the help of the angel who appeared to him in a thornbush. This man led him out 
performing wonders and signs in the land of Egypt, in the Red Sea, in the wilderness for 40 years. 37. This is the Moses who sent the sons of Israel. God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness, together with the angel, who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai, and who was our fathers, and he received living oracles to pass on. However, 39. Our fathers were unwilling to be obedient, but repudiated Him, and their hearts turned back to Egypt. They were worldly, just like you men. <laughs> Saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. For this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what happened to him. 41. At this time they made a calf and brought a sacrifice to the idol, and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and delivered them to serve the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of prophets, It was not me that you offered victims and sacrifice for forty years in the wilderness. Was it, O house of Israel? That's a reference to Amos 5.25. Keep going. Verse 43. He just keeps delivering them what they already knew. You also took along the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of the god of Ramphah, the images which you made to worship. I will also remove you beyond Babylon. 44. Our fathers had the tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern what you have seen. Beloved, stop there. I know that was a lot to read. Do you realize that Stephen just covered... Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's impressive. And he says, Men, you say I don't love the Word and I'm distorting it. Am I proving to you yet how much I love the Word and how well I know our people's history? And you're missing Christ and everything I'm looking at, I see that it's pointing to Him and you still will not see it. So reason four now. Now we're almost done here with this. Reason four, I love the Word of God and would never tamper with it is it teaches us how God used Joshua and how he was patient with our people until King David. This is an interesting comment here. Notice 45. And having received it in their turn, our fathers brought it with Joshua, the tabernacle, upon disposing the nations whom God drove out before our fathers until the time of David. In case you just missed that, he just preached 400 years in two sentences. He just covered Joshua judges Ruth in a single sentence. <laughs> I, do you ever wonder if those men were saying, man, this guy knows his Bible. <laughs> he is making connection after connection after connection and delivering to us. This guy clearly, if he knows the Bible this well, is probably not tampering with it. But that was the accusation before all those people, that he was tampering with Scripture. Reason five, he loved God's Word and would never distort it is God's Word teaches us about David and Solomon as representative kings. Notice 46. David found favor in God's sight and asked that he might find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built him the house. By the way, he just covered 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, and 1 Kings up to chapter 12 in two more sentences. <laughs> now, this next line of thinking must have just hit them between the eyes because he's now going to jump from 931 Solomon's death Another 200 years to the life of Isaiah. And this is the sixth reason. And now the passage is going to unfold for us. Okay, You've hung in there well through just covering 1,300 years. Okay, You've done good. Here's reason six that he loves the Word and would never distort it. You ready for it? God warned me in Isaiah about men like you. 
That's what he's about to tell them. God warned me in the book of Isaiah about men like you. Notice he quotes Isaiah 66.1. A favorite passage for many of us, right? Isaiah 66.2. To this one I will look. Him who is humble, contrite of spirit, trembles at my word. Well, verse 1 is the contrast of the self-righteous, arrogant, false worshipers who will not humble themselves. And he's about to say, you men are like your forefathers in Israel who went to the temple, you offered sacrifices, you looked up to God and said, God, look at this incredible temple we've made. You should come dwell in it. And God told you He uses the earth as a footstool. He stands above the heavens. And when they make a sacrifice in this passage, He says it's like snapping a dog's neck in the mind of God. Notice what He says, verse 48. However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made with human hands, as the prophet said. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool and my feet. What kind of house will you build for me? This is a rebuke, says the Lord. Or where is a place that I may rest? Was it not me that made all these things? And then 51. You men. Look at this. He applies Isaiah 66.1 to them. No wonder. You wonder what got him killed? Here you go. He took out the Louisville slugger spiritually and he hit the hornet's nest. Here it is. You want to see why he got killed? No one was upset with him yet. Oh, this guy knows his Bible pretty solid. Okay, we're not going to be able to make our false case. Now he points at them and says, You men are as arrogant and ungodly as your forefathers. You men, verse 51, are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears and are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Wow. Then look at 52. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously been announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. 53. You who received the law as ordained by angels, yet you did not keep it. Stop there. Beloved, he just said, you're telling me I distort the scriptures? You're telling me I've got a problem with what's been written? Let's be clear. You men distort the scriptures. You men would have killed the old prophets. You're going to kill me probably in a moment, and I know that. And you're responsible for the death of the Messiah. You men are the murderers. Now, now they're angry. <laughs> now they're real angry. Notice verse 50, 54. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and began gnashing their teeth. So much for being these composed group of religious leaders. Now they're a mob that's angry and has murder in their heart. That's language for murderous hearts. Forget the false accusations. Those don't matter anymore. They want him dead. Notice 55. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God. This is Luke's commentary. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And Stephen said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Notice 57. But they cried with a loud voice. And look at this. They covered their ears. Their consciences were so burdened. They were so upset. They covered their ears. We're not going to hear from you anymore. So much for the composed religious leaders of the day, the stoic people of their little council. This is what the Word of God does to the conscience for the angry heart. They'll do anything to silence the Word when it's coming. Like a mob of angry criminals. Notice it says, 57, with one impulse, everyone charged him. 58, and when they drove him out of the city, they began stoning him. And then notice, a witness laid aside the robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And then look at Stephen's heart of compassion. 
59. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And then he fell asleep. That was one heck of a sermon. (laughs) One serious response. And beloved... What's interesting about this is sometimes we start to assume, just as an off note here, we assume that maybe Saul, who was Paul, was this kid that was there because they call him a young man who holds the coats and then later he gets angry. As you're about to see what I read in chapter 8, verses 1 to 4, immediately on the same day, Stephen's mourners start to mourn him and Paul starts to campaign to go into the houses and rip Christians out so he can put them in jail and kill them. He was not only, he was holding the coats because he was like the general who was sitting back giving his affirmation, kill the Christians. And later, we're going to see him get saved. I'll talk about that in a moment. Before we get to catch our breaths, Stephen's ministry career ends and then watch what happens. Verse 1, Saul who was in hearty agreement with the putting him to death. And notice, beloved, watch what happened. Blood was in the water. Stephen's blood made it like sharks swarming around. And persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And notice, beloved, look closely. They were all scattered. Notice where? Through the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles... Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentations over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house to house, and dragging off men and women to put them in prison. And if they didn't recant, you could translate, he'd put them to death. Verse 4, Therefore those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Stop there. The entire point of everything I just said is right there. So if you missed all today, and I lost you during the long sermon, tune back in. Everything that's happened up to this point has its exclamation point in verse 1 and verse 4. You say, what do I mean? Beloved, the purpose of persecution and the reason this is in our Bibles is because of verse 1 and verse 4. Notice verse 1 again of chapter 8. Persecution began and the church was scattered. And where did they scatter to? Judea and Samaria. Let me give you a map. Okay, Jerusalem right here. You go north of Jerusalem, you've got Samaria. It's a large region with lots of cities and towns. You go south of Jerusalem, you've got Judea with lots of cities and towns. Look at Acts 1.8. How did God spread the gospel from Jerusalem? Well, He needed to fulfill what He said in Acts 1.8, won't He? But you will receive power from the Holy Spirit when He's come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in both in Jerusalem. That's all we've been so far. We've been in Jerusalem, all of Acts so far. And in Judea and Samaria and the remotest parts of the earth. Beloved, you've got to understand something. These 72 verses have been coming to this point. Maybe I could frame it up for you practically to see how sweet this is. I'll give you an illustration, but I'll make a point before it. What's being said here is God used persecution to take the gospel to places where the gospel had not gone. God knows how to get Himself most glory. So maybe this would show you the sweetness of it. If you lived in Samaria, and you had a, or you had a friend that lived in Samaria, and you had lunch with them, and the friend said, you wouldn't believe it. My brother just came to know and follow Christ and he attended one of the new churches in Samaria. Let's imagine you're just six months after this. And that friend said to you, 
My brother has come to follow the Messiah and he's got a new church in Samaria and he's worshiping the Lord and he was a God-hating Jew who professed to be a follower of God but he lived for himself and he's been saved and he's going to church in Samaria. And that friend said to you, and let's say you're in the church in Jerusalem, and they said to you, how did the gospel go from Jerusalem to get to Samaria? Oh, you don't know? Oh, I got to tell you about the day Stephen was killed. I got to tell you about the courage of Stephen, his willingness to stand, the sermon that he preached. And then God brought persecution to spread out the believers and a bunch of them landed in Samaria and more churches were planted and born and they started evangelizing and God used persecution to spread the church out. And that person would say, Wow, so you're telling me that God in His plan and purposes allowed persecution and hostility to come to the Jerusalem church, which spread them out, which landed some godly men who became pastors in Samaria, and those godly men shared the good news of Christ with my brother, and now my brother is going to be in heaven because God allowed Stephen to die and the church to be persecuted. Yep. Did you see why we had to get to chapter 8? Look at chapter 8, verse 4 again now. This is so encouraging. Why does God allow persecution? Why does He allow hostility to come to His people? He's got grand purposes. And beloved, Stephen knew this. He knew God would use the blood of the martyrs to embolden the people. Why? Look at chapter 8, verse 4. Therefore, those... This is a horrible chapter break. If something's above yours, it says Philip and Samaria. Mistake. Start with Philip in verse 5, please. Verse 4 goes with the previous section. Therefore, therefore what? In light of Stephen's death, in light of the persecution, in light of the sermon that he preached, in light of the hostility, in light of the fact that they couldn't come against him, in light of everything, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. The church was empowered and emboldened because when persecution came and they saw Stephen's life, it gave them the courage they needed to go preach and bring the truth. Why? Because who wants to see Stephen's life wasted? What godly believer is going to go when they get spread out and say, my brother, my dear brother, he did not die in vain. That man had courage and I will speak like him. You understand, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. couple implications now. This is why we had to get to 8, 1, and 4. The whole point of Stephen's life is to show how God used his death to take the gospel. And by the way, the gospel went from where? Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth to Jupiter, Florida to the early Puritans who were kicked out of England because they couldn't worship freely, who landed on the shores of the northeast of America, who started bringing the gospel to our country, which ended up having a, a generation of Puritan preachers born that spread the good news of Christ and the gospel got to people that got to people that got to people that somehow got to you and you sit here in the day in the long line of what God started with Stephen. Now, that is encouraging. Implications. One, God uses what we most fear, persecution, to spread the gospel. We dread persecution, and yet God in His providence often uses that to get the gospel to places He never would have before. Stephen knew that. Stephen knew that. Stephen believed God would use his courage and conviction to spread the gospel, so he happily died as a martyr 
so that Christ could be made known other places and other believers were emboldened by his courage. That's when we need to study his life in a couple weeks. Second implication. God uses faithful saints to bolster our courage. When you get tempted to compromise with your friends, when you get tempted when someone pushes back to you on campus or at the workplace or in your family, you will call to mind. Stephen was ready to stand. He was ready to die. He believed that God could use his suffering. So I will stand too. God uses faithful saints who endure to the end to embolden us to stand. Second, that's the second implication of persecution. Third implication, ready? God uses persecution hatred to save persecutors. Who did we see show up in this passage as the chief persecutor? Saul. What does God say to Saul who becomes Paul later on in chapter 9? Why are you hunting my church? Why are you after me? And all of Paul's life, what does he honestly keep saying? I'm the chief of sinners. I've slaughtered the most Christians. I'm the most worthy of death. So how could I not spend my life for the Lord? 1 Peter 2.12 says that very thing. Persecutors who are hating Christians and even kill them, God can use your godly responses to save them. How many men who have swung the axe and lopped off the head of a believer came to Christ? Perpetua, if you've read her story from 200, her guard who was in her prison cell tells her story because he watched her get eaten by lions after being awful to her and he came to Christ. How many men in church history have been forerunners for the church who were part of persecuting the church prior? Why does God allow persecution? Because He even uses the hatred of a persecutor to show them their sin so they come to know Him. We just have such a small mindset about this idea. The early church, this would have been their way of life. And last implication. This text proves something. Persecution leads to dispersion. God uses a scattering of believers to get the gospel to places where they never would have went would they not have been displaced. You read Tyndale's life. You read Luther's life. You read Calvin's life. You read every great man. God displaced them to places they never would have been and the gospel went forth and people were saved. That's the point of Stephen's life. We can't waste this brother's life without getting to chapter 8, verses 1 and 4, to show how God used him. So, beloved, when we get sinfully fearful, okay, tune in with me, about persecution, we don't say, I want to die, I'm going to run to it. No, no one loves pain. We don't stick our hand on the top of the, you know, the stove and say, let me do that again. <laughs> but we do say, God, if you bring it, let me have the mindset of Stephen who can have the face of an angel and have the courage of a martyr and stand whatever you bring because I know you're going to use this in ways I never even imagined. So just let me remain faithful. That's the point of Stephen's life, beloved. And we'll go back and study him for a couple weeks, but let's pray today. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for such a long, extended exclamation point for us. Stephen demonstrates to us how you use your gospel. And we are terrified at persecution and we don't long for it, Lord. We pray for the freedom to worship. We're grateful for that. But Lord, if you bring it, like most every other Christian in the last 2,000 years have had to face it, let us be those that stand knowing that you're going to use it in ways we never imagined. And when we fear, remind us that we go to an everlasting city in heaven where we get to be with you. And, and if our blood is what you would use to save another soul, may we be the type of people that would happily give it up for the sake 
of adding more people to your kingdom. Lord, it's hard for us in our American context even to fathom this type of persecution. But if we lived in this day, this would be a way of life. So may we now build convictions we may need in a day in America when we will face this, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. You guys are dismissed.